Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Hey, Amanda. <laughs> Good morning, Jenny. <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> how, how's the family doing? What are the kids up to? You still home with them? Yeah, they're home with me today and Zane's not here to help me look after them. So um, Jackson's out there writing in his journal right now and Malone's watching something on the iPad. So Mm. they're they're content for the moment. And um, I just asked them to be quiet. So hopefully they don't interrupt us too much. Nice. Uh, The big excitement around our house today, it's crazy sunglass day at the daycare. So... Um, Eddie is wearing crazy sunglasses with huge eyebrows attached to them. So that was our (laughs) excitement this morning. That sounds fun. Yeah, it's all right. Not too bad at all. And we have the team here at the office, which is really nice. And we have some, yeah, the team is in the lab part of our office here in Bowser. And they're doing a whole bunch of sediment analysis, faunal analysis, lithic analysis. So we've got kind of a full full ship here today. Great. That sounds fun. (laughs) So what are we talking about today? Okay, well, we were talking about who can and should practice archaeology. And so I was just about to take us back in time and give us a quick crash course in how we arrived at heritage legislation. So maybe we can kind of provide a bit of a foundation to this discussion and kind of do like a current temperature check on who does practice archaeology in the province and by what authority. So the authority is, uh, the, it's managed by the archaeology branch, or, and it's legislated, and they have a written policy, which is um, under their requirements. So this policy is not part of the HCA, but it's, it's under that umbrella. Right. And when we're talking about the HCA, we're talking about the Heritage Conservation Act. And By way of a a bit of background, the Heritage Conservation Act is our heritage legislation in BC, which pertains to all provincial lands, whether they're private or not. It does not pertain to federal lands, which includes, um, you know, reserves, some transportation right away, some foreshores, things like that. So it doesn't pertain to that at all. And, And in Canada, each province has their own heritage legislation and they're all quite different. And there is no federal heritage legislation except for on Parks Canada lands. So there hmm. are legislations that exist, but they're not, uh, they're not all the same. And they're, they're open, they're interpreted at the provincial level. So Canada does not place um, a federal value across the board for heritage, but there are provincial values that come into play. Yeah, and I've always wondered why that is. Why isn't there like an overarching federal legislated um, mandated protection for heritage? I don't know. And the other shocking thing is like you and I, 
we're not new to this field. We've been doing archaeology a long time. And we learned about the federal legislation late to the game when we were doing work in Stanley Park. And it was brought to our attention that this existed, but it wasn't well known. I don't know if you remember that, where I received that information and I was like, what the fuck? Like, why isn't this well known? Why aren't why aren't people why aren't people up on this? Because we're you know we're we're frequently asked about it, and it seems that it just hasn't been promoted. Often, like heritage seems like this this afterthought, right? Right. So yeah, I remember when that that came up, and it was it was puzzling for all of us, not yeah. just you and I. Yeah, all of us, right? Um, and we had reached out to other um, archaeologists who were working, for example, um, for the city of Vancouver, Parks Board, and so on, who, who, who were also learning about this in real time. So it was, it was super shocking. But maybe we could do a bit of an overview of the HCA in BC, because that's where we're located. And that's kind of the direct framework that we're operating within. Though, of course, there's other takeaways to answer the question of who should and can practice archaeology. If we if we take it out, but if we use BC as the case study, I think that's a good jumping off point. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that'd be a good foundation, a good place to start in BC, like what, because it it does parallel what's going what what has happened in other provinces and even in the states um, where I've also worked under heritage legislation. They all developed at around the same time period, and so again, we can use BC as kind of that case study. So. I don't know if you recall learning this when we did our webinars, but back in the 1960s is when we get our first provincial heritage legislation, and that's the Archaeological and Historical Sites Protection Act. And what that did was it, it brought in the first idea of permits, right? And permits, of course, are the golden ticket that let you do things within archaeological site boundaries. And so you would get this permit that first came out in the 60s, and that within it had a list of automatically protected site types. And then there was this catch-all category of other archaeological remains. So definitely in the 60s, we see this beginning of archaeological legislation, heritage legislation, uh, where folks are trying to place values. What's important to the state? What do we want to protect? What's important that doesn't get destroyed? Because as soon as we dig into an archaeological site, it's it's impacted. We can't undo it, right? Archaeology is is inherently destructive. And so we try to be selective. So if we look at what's going on more generally or theoretically around this same time, we're getting this period of hyperdevelopment happening, right? We're coming out of World War II. We've got the baby boomers. We've got hyperdevelopment happening. We've got forestry really um, getting a lot more legislation related to it. And that's where we get the fallout, where we're seeing these heritage sites, archaeological sites destroyed at an unprecedented rate and the state gets concerned and they say, okay, we need to start protecting this. But it was definitely a top-down approach where the state was defining what was being protected and what wasn't being protected. And even though we had this legislation, it didn't really have a lot of teeth. It didn't have um, it didn't have a lot of repercussions for folks who didn't get a permit to, to conduct archaeological work or to impact an archaeological site. So it gets a little bit tweaked by the 1970s is when we get what we what we have now, which is the Heritage Conservation Act. We get that rolling out in the 1970s, 1977. 
And this is where the legislative authority is extended to private land, because with the AHSPA, it hadn't extended to private land, right? So we're getting this um, authority, legislative authority extending to private land, but it does remove that catch-all category of archaeological sites, with the fallout being it diminishes the range of protected archaeological heritage. So they remove the catch-all, and then it's just a really, really focused group of sites that are left. There's also enforcement embedded within that heritage legislation, but it's completely hampered by the statute of limitations restrictions, and there's limited provisions for penalties. So we see this potentially powerful HCA coming out in the 70s, but in terms of enforcement, it's not backed up, doesn't have teeth, right? So then what we get is the Heritage Conservation Act is largely unchanged until the 90s, which is, we get some amendments in 94, 1996. And hold on, hold on a second, Jenny. So so just um, to, to be clear, anything prior to the Heritage Conservation Act coming into play, or I guess prior to the Heritage Conservation Act, it was called something else. What, yeah. what was it again? The Archaeological and Historical Sites Protection Act. So prior to that, any development that happened in the province of BC basically just destroyed archaeological sites, we yeah. can assume. Yeah, and we can talk about that in a minute about like the, the beginnings of archaeology in BC, which of course begins much earlier than the 1960s. But it's not until the 1960s that we get legislative controls for it. And the idea to it at that point was to, to protect sites, but also to manage sites, because even though the act came into play, there was still allowances for sites to be altered or destroyed. Yeah. And so within the heritage legislation, and this remains to this day, it's largely pro-development and that it facilitates development. I don't mean that it's going around promoting development, but development can be facilitated under the legislation. And so with a permit, with the uh, approved methods, archaeological sites can be removed. Right. And it's that's called an alteration permit. And that's called an alteration permit. But we don't get that until a little bit later. Um, the other interesting thing is with the Archaeological and Historical Sites Protection Act in the 60s, we don't really get much input from First Nations. There was um, feedback sought from nations in 1987, which which some of it made it in into the 1994-1996 version of the Heritage Conservation Act. So they had gone to the Union of BC Indian Chiefs to get some feedback, but it wasn't universally adopted and wasn't brought in. And while the UBCIC, it's terrific that they consulted them, it still wasn't necessarily a local level consultation. And as we know, archaeology in BC is super diverse. The sites that are on the coast are not the same as the sites that are in the interior. And different nations have different heritage values. They have different things that they're looking to protect. So when we have this one size fits all heritage legislation, it's not recognizing those local heritage interests and goals at the community level, which remains a problem with our current legislation that we have today, which is still the Heritage Conservation Act. And so 
with the Heritage Conservation Act, the version that we have is largely the version from 1996, although there were a couple additional changes made to it just a couple years ago with regard to enforcement. So we do have a more robust compliance and enforcement arm, and we are exploring as a province, we are exploring opportunities for expanding protection for different types of archaeological sites, um, as well as sacred sites, intangible heritage sites, and traditional use sites, which have always been embedded within the Heritage Conservation Act, but have never been implemented. And so we're looking forward to that being implemented more widely moving forward. Yeah, I'm super curious about that. And uh, maybe we can talk about that on, a, on another episode. We can keep that in mind for an additional topic. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> so- okay. Going back to the question about who can do archaeology, who, who can practice archaeology in BC today? Yeah, did you want to speak to that? I mean, a lot of it goes back to permit holders and field directors, and at its core, it's a Bulletin 17 issue. Yeah, so Bulletin 17, I actually have it open here, and this was a bulletin that was issued a while back, um, but it's got a couple of different revisions to it. So the one I'm looking at is from 2015. And this bulletin describes the criteria that the archaeology branch requires for who can hold a permit in the province. And um, it's also the same for who can field direct under a permit. So if it's a field director, that's somebody different from the permit holder, but they're listed under the permit as being authorized to direct that field work. So they have to meet a certain criteria and certain qualifications to be able to work under a permit. And there's two types of permits that we work under. There's heritage inspection permits and there's heritage investigation permits as well as site alteration permits. Yes, so I guess there's there's three. Yeah, so the first two relate to section 12.2 of the Heritage Conservation Act, and then the site alteration permit relates to 12.4 of the act. So the requirements to field direct, uh, so this is not, not to be a permit holder, but to, to be able to work in the field, you and have to a, have and, and lead a crew like so so yeah. just as background folks can't go out and lead a crew unless they're a field director there's a couple um there's a couple concessions made so that a, a field director can remotely lead a crew if they're within so many hours of the crew where they're working but not ideal practice um but yeah so you need to be a field director to to lead a crew so in order to be a field director you have to have a master's degree in either archaeology or anthropology with a specialty in archaeology or a, a bachelor's degree with an equivalent combination of postgraduate training and experience. And that experience is then um, laid out. So the experience that the ARC branch requires is a minimum of 360 working days and they they look at those days very carefully 
So that includes a minimum of 40 days supervising under an impact assessment under the authority of the Heritage Conservation Act. So it has to be some, some work that was done under permit. And it has to be in the general culture area for which that permit is sought. So they break up the province into three different culture areas, the Northwest Coast, the Interior Plateau, and the Subarctic Boreal Forest. And this experience must um, present a, a demonstrated ability to supervise the impact assessment study, including the ability to identify, record, report, and provide management recommendations for the range of site types that are found in that culture area. Right. And the really, one of the bonkers things about this is that you know, I'm a coastal, I'm approved as a coastal field director and an interior field director. Those are vast, vast areas. And so while most of my training for the interior has been in the caribou, like pine forests, uh, big flat plateaus, I can still technically, according to this legislation, field direct, let's say down in the Southeast in the foothills of the Rockies, which is a very different area, very different sites. And it does seem fairly bonkers to me that I can waltz in there and direct a crew having almost never worked there. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me. I, I have the same um, ability to work there and very little experience. Right. And so then it's another way that archaeologists have to kind of check themselves and guide themselves by saying, no, 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 that's like I'm saying that's outside of my ability. I am not doing work in that area. Let me refer you to a local firm, for example. The other thing that I find really crazy about this notion is that the branch basically draws a line on a map. Yeah. And that line is very thin. (laughs) So where, you know, where do they decide it changes over from the Northwest coast to the interior plateau? Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because, because in, in um, times past, folks would just be traveling and they would walk to that line and then turn around again. Right. (laughs) Right. They'd say, no, they have a different house type on the other side of this line. We can't possibly go over there. Yeah. And then the same goes for the line between, uh, you know, where does the subarctic boreal forest uh, happen um, because some in some places it's very interior like in terms of the site types, but you're actually working in the subarctic, right? So, so in addition to that, the branch also requires the following experience: you have to have sixty working days doing excavation, also under a Heritage Conservation Act permit. So, for if you did your excavation experience somewhere else in the world, that doesn't count. If you did your excavation experience on federal land, they might take that into account, but you have to make an argument for it. Right. So there's definitely loopholes, I would say, or concessions within um, <laughs> within <laughs> Bulletin 17, but they can go either way. They can enable folks to be in charge of projects who perhaps shouldn't, right? 
Um, like, like me, for example, working down in the Kootenays, let's say in the Southeastern part of the province. Um, but it doesn't necessarily create loopholes for folks who might have equivalent experience, but haven't gone the university route. Right. Right. So for example, you and I have worked with many, many indigenous archeologists who have been doing archeology span longer than we've been alive are experts in their territories and are expert archaeologists. Um, Are they allowed to hold permits and field direct? No, because they don't have a bachelor's degree. Right. Or a master's degree. Right. And they're not named under the permits, right? Because folks, to gather those days to get your experience table that Amanda was talking about, you you have to be named in the report that supports the permit. And if you're not named in there, we have these kind of different categories of folks who are on a field team. We have the field director, we have field supervisors, we have general archaeologists, and we have First Nations participants, monitors, or representatives. And the only folks who get to meaningfully use that field experience towards this Bulletin 17 requirements are the field director and the field supervisors. The more general archaeologists are, are widely speaking kind of more junior and they get to kind of listed in their experience table going forward. But for First Nations representatives, monitors and technicians, and each nation calls them different things, which is why I'm using multiple terms. Um, they don't get the same representation with their experience. They don't have the same opportunity to showcase their experience. Yeah, that's super crazy. It would be nice to see the archaeology branch consider that and make a concession for folks who have this experience in their own territories. Right. And there there should be. I mean, in many other professional reliance models, which we're working on in BC, we don't technically have a professional reliance model, though we do have designated uh, professional consulting archaeologists. There are often other ways that you can challenge uh, requirements. So by showing, uh, you know, an equivalent education or experience, it would widen who can practice archaeology and it would really bring it back to um, it would really bring it back to honoring experience, actual experience, field based experience, because using myself again as an example, I have a master's degree in archaeology in Near Eastern archaeology. Super cool. Awesome place to work. Doesn't necessarily help me recognize culturally modified trees. Yeah. So what we're left with doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And particularly when we look at the the current economic economic and resource-driven economy that we're in, we're crying out for archaeologists and there are archaeologists that exist. So within BC, we have give or take about 200 permit holders, right? And every single resource development on provincial lands one way or another, has to at least consider archaeology. And this is happening more and more as archaeology legislation is reworked to have more teeth, more compliance and enforcement. Folks are getting in line with archaeology, bringing in that conservation ethic that came out of the 70s, 
which is great. That's positive. But what we haven't done, we've widened the need for archaeology, but we haven't widened who can support that, that larger model. If we genuinely care about heritage, we need to also be updating who can do heritage, who can manage archaeological sites, who can do heritage work. And why on earth aren't we turning to the experts at the local level, the First Nations, who can promote their own interests their own heritage goals and direct how they would like their material dealt with. It makes sense. And it would, it would take away the pinch point that we're all feeling in archaeology right now. Every archaeological firm that I talk to is swamped. There is too much work. The archaeology branch is swamped as well. We're looking at multiple months to get permits and we've become a pinch point for resource development in BC, which of course our economy is so reliant upon. That's one thing that we're gonna talk about in another episode, but pertinent to today and who can and should practice archeology, span First Nations are using these permits to dictate who can work within their territory and who's qualified to work within their territory. And if they know the archeologist as well. And I wonder, could you kind of, do you have any examples of that? Well, we see it more prevalent down in the lower mainland. Um, and it's like the idea of, of nations holding their own heritage permits is a concept that is, it's, it, other nations are, are considering that. And I think that idea is taking off, um, but we don't see it up north uh, as much as we do down south. Right. Yeah, so we're definitely seeing it in and around Vancouver. Um, a lot of the a lot of the nations in and around Vancouver have their own heritage permitting and policy, which we support, and where they will exercise their rights to say who can practice archaeology, who can work with their ancestral materials, which of course makes like logical sense. Um, why do you think that that isn't up north yet? Because we have worked with some nations to help them develop their own. Um, policy, like heritage policy up north. And so why do you, what do you think is going on up north that that hasn't happened just yet? I think it's mostly a capacity issue. I think they like the idea and the concept of it and they see other nations doing it mm -hmm. successfully, but I think they're just maybe not, not quite there yet. Um, they don't have the capacity to monitor who's applying and, and keeping track of those things. You'd have to have a system in place. Right. And which, which we have tried to help folks with as well. But of course we don't swoop in and do that. It's like an invitation thing. So unless folks ask for it, I'm also thinking of the Haida, for example, who in, in their, in, in practice of their own heritage sovereignty on their islands, where they have, you know, regardless of what the, the HCA is saying, if they don't want an archeologist working in their territory, we have heard accounts of them escorting archaeologists off the island. Yeah, they just simply say, no, you can't be here doing work. Right. We won't support. We won't support your work. Right. So what do you think would happen? Because there's also, so within our heritage legislation, um, you know, if I'm applying for a permit to do some work, uh, to do, let's say, a site alteration, I have to, I have to name the members of the team, name the field directors on my permit lay out my methods, lay out my reporting structure. I submit that with my permit application. 
the archaeology branch reviews it. And then they send it out for First Nations referrals. So it, it goes to all the nations uh, who have a recognized territorial claim in the area where the project's happening. And yeah. they get to review my permit application. And sometimes we have heard where the, let's say, nation ABC will write back to the archaeology branch and say, you know, we're fine with this, but we're not fine with this archaeologist doing the work in our territory. Do you have any idea? Like, how is the branch responding to that? It's on a case-by-case basis, really. So it'll depend on the project officer who is reviewing the application. Hmm. And I have I have uh, witnessed that with, particularly with the Haida, um, them saying no to a particular archaeologist, um, not saying no to the company but just to the archaeologist right uh, sorry i'm just having an interruption here what is it sweetie? Mm-hmm. you're all done yes okay great hi jackson oh hi <laughs> um would you mind working on your math now okay here take this with me and and close the door please yes thank you thank you for being quiet <laughs> That, that was inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the last day, I mean, that was a good hour. That was pretty good. <laughs> so where were we? We were talking about... Uh, the Haida saying no. Um, they were saying no to the archaeologist, but I don't think they were saying no to the firm. Right. Yeah. So they, they definitely said no to the archaeologist. And the, and the archaeology branch was supporting that. Right. But, but that's not always the case. Right. It almost, and I think as you say, it's a case by case basis dependent on the project officer. And so I think increasingly, to the ARC branch's credit, um, they're trying to support the comments coming back from First Nations during this permit review period. But it really is still a case by case basis, which I think is the shocking thing. I feel like there should just be an acceptance of First Nations preferences to work in their territory. Yeah. 100% it should be. I think folks just aren't. (laughs) We see this increasingly. It's like archaeology is all about the field work and the back end work, the reporting. But it seems like there's this unwillingness to do the front end work of like checking in with the nations because really the archaeologists shouldn't be getting information from the archaeology branch that the nation doesn't want them there. Because what we should be doing is reaching out to the nation way ahead of time before we submit our permits and saying, hey, uh, is it okay if uh, so-and-so comes and fields, field directs in your territory? And then we could be alleviating these things plus introducing ourselves so yeah. that we're not this um, you know, unknown coming in and harvesting mm-hmm. heritage resources. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that's something that archaeologists should be doing like way before the permit is submitted. And and another thing they could do is just send a copy of the permit application directly to the nation as well. Right. Instead of sending it to the branch and then waiting for the branch to send it to the nation. Yeah. But there's no requirement for, um, for, for archaeology firms to do that. No. So, so then it's still, it's still the legislative, the top-down framework is still the gatekeeper of who can practice archaeology in BC. We did have one staff member who was eager to get his field director 
in his like second year of doing consulting archaeology. Right. And I remember that we tried to get this person to, to take a pause and we tried to mentor them and suggest to them that they wait until they were ready. Even though they had the the minimum or they were getting close to having the minimum number of days supervising, they they still were pretty green, like super green, only doing two years of archaeology. Right. But yeah, they 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 were supported by the legislation and feeling that they could go out and do the work. And how do you think the nations would feel about that? That like all of a sudden there's an, a new archaeologist coming onto their territory and they're from some completely other province or country and they want to do work in their territory, in, the, in their traditional territory. And they have that legislative experience c- coming from that, that particular culture area. How do you think they would feel about that? I think they'd say it's garbage. You know, it must be particularly tricky for the person reviewing the permit in the band office. And they're looking at this named field director whom they've never met, never heard of. And they're thinking, I have more experience than this person, but yet I can't field direct in my own, my own territory. Yeah. And that, that scenario that you just described has, has happened time and time again, right? And what we're seeing in the South in particular around Vancouver is nations are hiring uh, field directors to work under them, right? So they'll have um, a non, let's say not always, but a non-Indigenous archaeologist who's on the band payroll. And so part of what they're doing is promoting that nation's best interests as well in their approach. Plus they can hold permits, which is really exciting. And I kind of think that's the future is these um, indigenous directed managed owned firms as well so that they can be really controlling like at the ground level who's practicing archaeology yeah it would it would make way more sense right to do it that way and then they could also be training up indigenous archaeologists at the same time, advocating for them to get their days, making sure their um, experience table is updated and like integrating um, indigenous archaeologists into this top down legislative system, which I think has which I think to date has largely overlooked them. Yeah, I agree. We also need to be committing to training um, First Nations participants and archaeologists across the board in the information that we are like the knowledge keepers of, which is the legislated side of archaeology. And so that means supporting First Nation community members in filling out their uh, tables and getting them experience under permit as well, not just bringing them out in the field, but committing to have them as part of the pre-planning process committing to having them part of the reporting and analysis process. So they're not just coming out for a day or two in the field and then going home and not seeing what's happening with that material, not learning what's going on on that side of things in archaeology. And that way, folks are more empowered to participate more fully in this um, imperfect system that we have to work with right now. Um, How are we at Clienza addressing these questions? Who do we think should practice archaeology and what guides us in that? I think everyone with appropriate experience 
should be able to do archaeology and particularly First Nations who have an interest in doing archaeology, they, sh- they should be allowed to do it as well. The other thing we haven't talked about is we also have a professional association. Yeah. So the BC Association of Professional Archaeologists, the BCAPA, by and large, a really good organization. We've been members of it for many, many years um, and try to support it as best we can. Um, And there is kind of this unofficial alignment between the tiers of membership in the BCAPA and the legislative tiers of who can practice archaeology in um, from the archaeology branch, right, under the HCA. So yes. there's also like a control happening there as well, right? So you and I get to put the fancy letters after our name of RPCA, we're registered professional consulting archaeologists. Um, and that comes from the BCAPA, the Association of Professional Archaeologists as well. Is there anything you want to add? Yeah. Yeah, like to become a professional archaeologist, you have to go through... Um, a similar process. You know, if we're if we're summarizing who should practice archaeology, best case scenario, I think the priorities have to be in the right place. They need to know who or what their work is ultimately servicing. Is it actually servicing the archaeological record? Is it actually servicing the indigenous communities that own the material rightly? Or is it just in service of a checkbox on an environmental assessment application or other development permit? Of course, and people who practice archaeology should be well will should be well trained. They should be well qualified. But we really need to widen that to you know consider what does it mean to be well trained? Just because you've done a bachelor's degree and then you can go out and you know lead crews, but yet the, the indigenous archaeologist who's been working in the territory, on the land for 30 years, they can't do that. I mean, if that if that doesn't get your attention as being a broken system, I don't know what is. Um, other people going out who should be practicing archaeology are those who have introduced themselves, say hello, talk to communities, see what they would like, see if they know about the project, encourage your clients um, to go and introduce themselves as well. The first time a community is hearing about a project should not be when the permit, you know, comes into their email from the archaeology branch. That is not okay. And the the reality is if we widen who can practice archaeology and if we widen, if we widen why we're doing it, we actually all benefit. It's much richer for it. And it will help the discipline. Our discipline is swamped. We're a bottleneck. And if we can widen who can practice archaeology, we will be able to alleviate some of these stresses and pressures on the archaeologists that are working. And there's good people out there who could do more of the work. And then the the silver lining to that is it brings power back to Indigenous people over their own cultural material. If we widen the doors, the legislative doors, to enable and empower Indigenous archaeologists to be recognized as full-fledged deserving practitioners under that system. I think you did an excellent job recapping that. Thank you so much. (laughs) really appreciate your support. And I think this topic is, uh, even though, you know, we, we talked about it at great length, but I think we could talk about it more. And I think we could have future episodes where we bring in guests and, and continue this conversation and, and get other in, perspectives. And bring in Indigenous archaeologists who, instead of me saying, you know, yeah. why they're pissed off, they can just say, no, no, Jenny, you had it all wrong. This is why I'm pissed off. And then I can say, oh, yes, that's <laughs> much better worded. 
Um, I'm feeling good about this topic. I think it's a great start. I think it's a huge topic. I, I mean, our discipline, it's, it's, we're such a, we're small, but mighty, right? I, I've said that before about our, about Cleanza, we're small, but mighty, but we're a small group of people with a ridiculous amount of power. And it has, we have to kind of draw the curtain back and see that <laughs> me, who is running the show? Like, why are we doing this? And I think we need to be talking about this instead of just, you know, willy nilly assuming the system is infallible and oh, because it's official, it must be terrific. And be kind of questioning, why is this the system in the first place? Yeah, there's so many aspects to the system that could use improvement. This is just like the tip of the iceberg talking about who can practice archaeology. There's there's a lot more to the system that needs fixing. Um, okay, well, I'm going to let you get back to your kids because they're going to be hungry again in about three and a half seconds. <laughs> um, another no doubt. Before they come in again. Um, and... Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Like, you know, we work together so long and we talk about this stuff all the time, but every time I chat with you about it, there's always kind of a new insight. So I'm going to go away and think about this some more. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to chatting with you again soon. I look forward to you mailing me a peanut butter sandwich. (laughs) Well, it'll be on raisin bread. Is that okay? Delightful. Okay. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode. <laughs>